It's June, 2014. It's raining in Amsterdam. Arthur Brand takes shelter from the downpour to light a cigarette in the doorway of a fancy restaurant in the upscale neighborhood of Zout. Doesn't have an umbrella, so his hair hangs in wet clumps. Damp patches darken the shoulders of his suit jacket. Arthur spots a blue Volvo with a Belgian number plate as it noses around the corner. This has to be him, the man he's come to meet. Steven, the art dealer from Antwerp. The Volvo pulls up and a tall man with curly hair gets out. Arthur's met Steven once before, years ago. He's older now. His curls are more gray than black. But it's the same Steven, no doubt about it. He's every inch the art broker, right down to the trendy glasses and ostentatious watch. The two men greet each other. Then Arthur leads the way into the restaurant. He sees his partner Alex sitting alone at one of the tables as they'd arranged. But they're careful to avoid looking at each other. After they find a table, Arthur excuses himself and pays a brief visit to the toilet. Arthur stands in front of the mirror and fiddles with the button of his breast pocket. Except it isn't really a button. It's a camera lens connected to a recording device hidden in Arthur's inside pocket. Well, let's just hope it stays that way. Because if Steven realizes he's being filmed, Arthur's in trouble. For one thing, the deal will definitely be off. That's bad enough, but it could get a whole lot worse. Steven's clients won't be happy if they find out Arthur tried to pull a stunt like this. As Steven once said, these people are capable of anything. The possibility that they might harm or even kill Arthur, it can't be ruled out. Arthur checks one last time that the wire can't be seen. Then he activates the camera and heads back to the table. Arthur quickly brings the conversation around to the striding horses. The statues are thought to have been destroyed in the war, but... Arthur has discovered proof that they survived intact. He's meeting Stephen today to broker a deal to buy the horses on behalf of a fictitious client. Now, his real goal is to recover the statues for the German state and stop the sellers getting their hands on 8 million euros. This is something Arthur is desperate to prevent. You see, he believes Stephen's clients may be Nazi sympathizers who would use the money to further their extremist agenda. Now, Arthur's brought along documentation proving his own client's financial good standing. He shows Stephen photocopies of a passport and an auditor's report for a Texan oil tycoon called Moss. It's all fake, of course. Mocked up by Alex. In fact, Arthur's modeled Moss on the ruthless J.R. Ewing, the character from the TV show Dallas, 
The auditor's report values Moss's assets at over $266 million. This is just the stuff on record, Arthur tells Stephen. It doesn't include the dirty money. Stephen seems impressed. In a deal like this, knowing that the buyer is a little crooked actually helps. Arthur asks Stephen about his client. Is it really one of the flicks? A well-known and powerful German industrial dynasty? Stephen says he's been told it's a family that owns a lot of factories. So it could be. But the name Flick is common in Germany. Arthur asks Stephen if he's seen the horses. The answer is no. Stephen says when he asked, he was warned not to pry. He leans closer to Arthur and whispers tensely, Look, these are the types who were mixed up in one of the most murderous regime in history. Do you think they would hesitate to bump someone off? It's hardly a reassuring thought. But Arthur's in too deep now to back out. He notices his partner, Alex, slip out of the restaurant, heading for a nearby bar where they had arranged to meet afterwards. Arthur suddenly feels a little more alone, a little more vulnerable. He focuses on the job at hand and encourages Stephen to discuss the logistics of the sale. A sale that'll never even really happen. Arthur thinks about what Stephen has just said about his clients. How will people like that react when they find out they've been played? That's a question he doesn't like to dwell on. My name is Mark Dodson. From Noiser, this is part three of the Nazi art mystery. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Arthur watches Stephen drive away after lunch. Then he takes out his phone and calls Alex. His partner has some unsettling news for him. Don't look around, but you're definitely being followed. Arthur jumps on a tram, then gets off after three stops to hail a taxi. He keeps checking the back window. Eventually, he reassures himself that he's shaken off his tail. He meets Alex at their prearranged rendezvous. They discuss who might have been following Arthur. The most likely and reassuring possibility is that it was someone from the German Secret Services. You may remember that at the end of the last episode, Arthur met with René Allange, the head of Germany's art crime department in Berlin. Maybe this is Allange keeping a discreet and protective eye on Arthur. He's got to hope so. Now, Alex and Arthur review the video of the meeting that Arthur secretly recorded. There's a lot of background noise, but it's just possible to make out what's being said. Then, Alex plays a recording he made of Stephen on the phone 
while Arthur was away from the table. Again, the noise from the restaurant makes it a little hard to hear. But after listening a few times, Arthur makes out Stephen saying, Wolf, I'm here. See you later. Arthur remembers Rene Allange mentioning someone called Wolf, who he believed was mixed up in a previous attempt to sell the horses. Could this be the same person? It's starting to feel as though the various strands of the case are coming together. In the meantime, Arthur wants to find out more about what the proceeds from the sale might be used for. Eight million euros is a hell of a lot of money. If it falls into the hands of a group of ruthless neo-Nazis, there's no saying what damage it could wreak. And so, Arthur's next move is to try and get closer to those he believes will benefit from the sale. In the autumn of 2014, he travels to a suburb of Munich and finds himself in a street filled with ordinary-looking houses. He pays particular attention to one house. The shutters are closed, as if there is no one at home. He hides behind a tree in some nearby woods to wait for the owner to return. This is the home of Gudrun Burvich. Before her marriage, she was Gudrun Himmler, daughter of Heinrich Himmler, architect of the final solution to wipe out Europe's Jewish population. To Gudrun, Himmler was her beloved poppy, and she was his poopy, or doll. After the war, Gudrun continued to be loyal to the memory of her father. In her eyes, he had done no wrong. She is now the figurehead of a secretive neo-Nazi organization called Silent Assistance, which Arthur believes may stand to gain from the sale of the horses. He's staking out her house in the hope of putting a few questions to her. Not the least, where does Silent Assistance get its money? But he knows he has to be careful. She is a true believer and like all zealots, that makes her dangerous, a German Secret Service agent once said of her. Arthur suddenly sees an elderly woman approach. She stops to root for her keys in her bag. This has to be Burvich. Arthur breaks cover and races across the street. Frau Burvich, he calls out. She turns on him with a hostile glare. Arthur notes that she has the same cold blue eyes as her father. He knows he doesn't have much time, so he asks her straight out about silent assistance. A lot of lies are spread about silent assistance, she says. Since when is it forbidden to help people who, decades on, are still being prosecuted for something they once allegedly did? Arthur then asks about the organization's involvement with a new generation of neo-Nazis. Burvich's answer is unapologetic. The boys and girls who keep up the fight for a new Germany, and there are many of them, are the future of our people. And just before she disappears inside, Arthur gets out one last question. Where does silent assistance get its money from? Burvich smiles. There are still good people in the world 
who are willing to help us. That's all she'll say. So Arthur is unable to discover whether these good people include the sellers of Torax horses. It's frustrating. But as Arthur knows very well, any complex case will have its fair share of setbacks. Arthur's encounter with Gudrun Burvich may not have moved the investigation forward much, but it's allowed him to confront a key figure in the modern-day Nazi movement. It's put a face on the shadowy individuals he's up against. He feels he's getting closer to the truth about the missing sculptures, but he wants to keep the momentum going. So again, he contacts a source we met in part one, the mysterious Dr. Annenerba of Munich. Arthur discovers that in her younger days, Dr. Annenerba had worked for the East German art dealership Kunst und Antiquitäten. In other words, the Stasi. That's when she started dealing in Nazi memorabilia and artwork, and where she made her first contacts with leading Nazi families. Arthur asks Annenerba if she's ever had any dealings with the Flick family, but all she knows about them is what she's read in the papers. Has she ever come across anyone called Wolf? Again, the answer is no. Then, almost as a throwaway joke, he asks her about the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, the other lead that Rene Allange had given him. Grand Master? That can only be Joe Bodenstein, she replies. Though it turns out Bodenstein isn't a Grand Master of the Knights Templar, it does turn out he's with something called the Order of Alexander. It sounds like something ripped right out of the pages of the Da Vinci Code. But could an ancient, clandestine order really be behind the sale of the horses? And if so, how will Arthur penetrate the wall of secrecy that no doubt surrounds them? And more to the point, how will he do so without putting his life in danger? After all, who knows what oaths the members of the Order of Alexander are prepared to swear? Like all the best Dan Brown characters, Bodenstein lives in a castle near Cologne. Arthur suddenly knows where he's heading next in his quest to find the missing horses. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, a vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. We're now into January 2015, on the train to Cologne. 
Arthur researches the mysterious order of Alexander. Named after Alexander the Great, it boasts a roll call of very famous members, including the actor Peter Ustinov and Crown Prince Felipe of Spain. He finds a website which appears to be closely linked to the order. There's no explicit pro-Nazi ideology on there, but there's a lot of love for things the Nazis admired, including Brecca and Torak. In one article on the website, he reads the following intriguing sentence. Even as the GDR fell apart, German artworks were being flogged off from barracks used by Russians. The reference is clearly to the Red Army barracks in Eberswalde, which you may remember Arthur visited with Alex. But the operation that was run out of there was highly secretive. So how could the writer have known about it? Unless they were somehow involved. Arthur's surprised to find this snippet on the Order's website. It seems like the writer got sloppy, revealing something that's definitely not common knowledge. Maybe they forgot how the internet works, that anyone can read what you post, not just your friends and those sympathetic to your cause. Joe Bodenstein, the Grand Master of this obscure order, used to be a journalist. Could he be the author of the web article Arthur has just read? And if so, does his knowledge of the Eberswald operation mean that he had something to do with buying Torak striding horses from the Russians? These days, Bodenstein is the curator of a museum devoted to Arno Brecca, another of Hitler's favorite sculptors. The museum is housed in Bodenstein's home, Norvinich Castle. Given his enthusiasm for Brecca, Bodenstein is obviously a big fan of Nazi sculptors. Maybe, just maybe, he's got Torax horses hidden away in his castle somewhere. Arthur takes a taxi to Norvinich from Cologne. He gets the driver to drop him off a short distance from the castle and approaches the imposing sandstone building on foot. Arthur has to admit, he's feeling apprehensive. He needs this time to gather his thoughts and work out some kind of plan of action. Not for the first time in this investigation, he has no idea what he's walking into. Chances are, a secret order with possible Nazi overtones is not going to take kindly to some Dutch art detective trying to find out if they're raising funds for a fascist plot. Could he have just made a huge blunder coming here without Alex? But it's too late for that now. He's here. He may as well go through with it. After all, what's the worst that can happen? Although, maybe it's better not to ask that question. Set in acres of parkland, Nurvenich is a classic Gothic castle with spiked turrets at the corners like oversized Prussian helmets. It's like something out of a fairy tale, but one with a dark subtext. There's been a castle here since the 15th century. 
though the current building dates from the 1700s. It looks like the kind of place that's filled with restless spirits. But it's not ghosts that can hurt Arthur. Arthur walks around the wall that surrounds the grounds. He's looking for a way in. But also for an escape route if he has to get out in a hurry. In the end, he decides the best approach is the most direct. He walks through the front entrance like every other visitor. It's not much of a plan, but it's all he could come up with. He's just gonna have to play it by ear. Arthur is admitted to the Castle Museum by Bodenstein himself. A stooped, elderly man with white hair, walking with the aid of a stick. He pays the five euro admission charge. Arthur notices that there's no other visitors there that day. He gets the impression that this isn't unusual. Bodenstein is talkative and seems pleased to have someone to show off his collection to. He gives Arthur a personal guided tour of the works on display. Bodenstein tells Arthur that he considers Brecca to be the greatest artist of the 20th century. He points sadly to two empty plinths, which once contained statues that he says were removed by Brecca's widow following a legal dispute over the statue's ownership. Bodenstein claimed they were his. Frau Brecca begged to differ. The court, they took her side. Judging by the size of the plinths, they must have been big statues. Is Bodenstein lying? Did these plants, in fact, once house Torax horses? Arthur's not sure. The empty plants are in public view. It's unlikely they ever contained such controversial sculptures. Unlike Frau Borvich, Bodenstein doesn't come across as an out-and-out -out Nazi sympathizer. Though he does express a certain nostalgia for that era. And he's passionate about things that the Nazis celebrated, such as Wagner and the ideal of Aryan beauty. Perhaps he's just a harmless, slightly deluded old man, or maybe he's part of a plot to bring back the fascist regime whose art he clearly admires. Either way, the excitement of Arthur's visit seems to wear the Grandmaster out. He collapses into a chair, and then he falls asleep. Arthur takes the opportunity to have a look around without his intrusive guide. Through a window, he spies a large outbuilding. It looks promising, certainly large enough to hide Torax horses. Arthur slips out through a side door. The barn is securely locked up. Arthur finds a garbage can and drags it below one of the grimy, cobwebbed windows. He climbs up and peers inside. Disappointingly, the enormous barn is empty. There's no sign of the horses. Suddenly, Arthur hears Bodenstein coming up behind him. What are you doing here? 
demands the old man. Arthur almost falls off the garbage can in shock. Thinking quickly, he tells Bodenstein he was looking for the toilet. It sounds unconvincing even as he says it, but the Grand Master must be a trusting type. He tells Arthur the toilet is inside. It's been an interesting day, but Arthur doesn't feel he's any closer to finding the horses. He needs to move the investigation along. It's time to put pressure on Stephen and force the horses out into the open. Back in Amsterdam, Arthur makes contact with Stephen again. He hints that his fictitious client, Mr. Moss, is getting impatient. Stephen breaks the bad news that the deal may have to be delayed. A legal dispute has arisen between the sellers and another individual who he doesn't name, though he happens to let slip that one of the people involved lives near Kiel, a big city in North Germany. Arthur makes a mental note. The setback makes Arthur nervous, especially when a tabloid reporter starts asking awkward questions. Somehow, they got wind of something big happening in the world of Nazi art. Arthur's gonna have to move quickly before an expose blows the whole thing. Arthur meets up with von Hammerstein, the investigative reporter for Der Spiegel. If you recall from the last episode, Hammerstein has offered to help Arthur with the investigation. Today, Arthur's very interested to see what he's managed to dig up. It's quite a lot, as it turns out. Von Hammerstein has tracked down a West German art dealer who acted as a middleman between the Stasi-backed art dealership and a select group of ex-Nazi and neo-Nazi collectors. The dealer gave von Hammerstein the name of one of the collectors he sold to. It's a name that Arthur is very familiar with by now. Flick. Whether this collector, Klaus Dieter Flick, is one of the famous Flicks, von Hammerstein can't say. But he does know that the man has far-right and ultra-nationalist connections. He's also found out where he lives, somewhere near Kiel. Kiel, the North German city, where Stephen said one of the parties in the loan dispute lives. It's too much of a coincidence. It's now February, 2015. Arthur's been on his quest to find the horses for a year. He can feel the last pieces of the puzzle slotting into place. He knows where he has to go next. Arthur tracks Klaus Dieter Flick to the Baltic Sea Resort of Heikendorf, just outside of Kiel. This time, his business partner Alex is with him. Alex has discovered that Flick is the owner of an impressive arsenal of wartime weapons so they need to tread carefully. They learn from a local 
that his collection even includes a working tank from the Second World War. Apparently, the tank is positioned with its barrel facing outwards, ready to repel intruders. They find Flick's villa in an affluent neighborhood on the seafront, a high wall screening it from prying eyes. Arthur and Alex sneak into a neighbor's garden. There's a wall here too, but it's not as high as at the front. In a hushed whisper, Arthur suggests they climb over. And just at that moment, Flick's dog starts barking. By the sound of it, it's a big dog too, and it knows they're there. A man calls to the dog. Flick? It must be. The barking stops. Arthur and Alex freeze, barely breathing. After a moment, Arthur relaxes. The coast is clear. Desperate to see what's on the other side of the wall, he hauls himself up into one of Flick's neighbor's trees. But the branches aren't strong enough to take his weight. And his fall sets the dog off again. They hear Flick call out, Who's there? Arthur and Alex hold their breath once more as Flick goes inside. No doubt to call the police. Maybe there's another way to find out what's on the other side of the wall. Alex takes out his phone and accesses a database of American Air Force satellite pictures, which gives even better coverage than Google Earth. Arthur knows better than to ask how he got the login code. Alex zooms in on Flick's huge garden. They can see the garage where the tank is presumably housed, but there's no sign of the horses. Arthur spots a white glint in the satellite photo and gets Alex to hone in on it, partially hidden under some foliage. They can make out a bronze statue of a man holding a sword in the air. They recognize it as the Army by Arno Brecca, one of the statues that was in the Reich Chancellery during the war. Like Torax striding horses, it was believed to have been destroyed in the Battle of Berlin. If this statue survived, it makes it all the more likely that the horses did too. Arthur climbs up into another tree. He peers over the wall and is stunned to see Brecca's monumental figure standing right there with its back to him. The bronze is weathered and discolored, but there's no mistaking it. This is one of the most iconic images of the Nazi era. It defined the Aryan ideal, which formed the aesthetic model for the art of Hitler's Third Reich. Arthur feels that he's closer than ever to finding the horses. Arthur travels to Berlin to bring René Allange up to speed on his astonishing discovery in Herr Flick's garden. It's after midnight when a taxi drops him at the police station. Most of the windows are in darkness, 
but there's a light glowing in one. Alange's office. A duty officer admits Arthur with a curt, what do you want? Arthur takes the elevator to the second floor where Alange is waiting for him. The policeman ushers him into an interrogation room with a two-way mirror on one wall. Suddenly, Arthur feels like he's a suspect, but Alange quickly reassures him, pushing an ashtray across the table. It's going to be a long night, he says, and the reason he's chosen this room is because you're allowed to smoke in here. Arthur tells Alange what he saw in Flick's garden, specifically Brecca's sculpture, the army. Are you sure? Says Alange, restlessly pacing the floor. We saw it with our own eyes. Arthur makes a formal witness statement, giving Alange all the evidence he needs to apply for search warrants. Finally, just as the day is beginning to dawn, he heads to a hotel. He tries to get some sleep, but his head's spinning. In a few weeks' time, a major police operation is going to take place with multiple raids in different locations. All because of the statement Arthur has just made. It's the culmination of a year-long investigation, but it's not over yet. The planned raids may not result in the discovery of the horses. The people behind the sale could still avoid exposure. They might even come after Arthur. And there's still questions he wants to know the answers to. Not the least, how are the horses smuggled out of East Germany? The next day, Arthur meets up with Konstantin von Hammerstein the Der Spiegel journalist, as a lead which he believes could provide the final piece in the investigation. It's the answer to the very question that was puzzling Arthur. He's tracked down a man who he believes was involved in the transporting of the horses away from Everswald. There's a chance this man may know where the horses are now. The two men drive about an hour north of Berlin to a scrap metal yard in Oranienburg. The owner is a gray-bearded man called Horst Rubich, who, according to von Hammerstein's information, played a key role in moving the horses. At first, Rubich is reluctant to talk, almost as if he's afraid. But Arthur's persuasive. If Rubich doesn't speak to the two of them now, they'll both be forced to carry out with their investigations. They'll talk to other people. They'll make a nuisance of themselves, asking questions, digging up the past. Word will get around. The people Rubich is afraid of may decide to cover their tracks. That might involve silencing Rubich permanently. Finally, Rubich tells them everything. How in 1989, a shady West German Wheeler dealer, let's call him Herr X, hired him to collect six bronze statues from a Russian barracks in Eberswald. 
Torak's horses were part of that consignment. This is a breakthrough moment. Arthur is speaking to someone who was directly involved in transporting the horses. But how is that even possible? How did Herr X manage to pull off such an audacious, illicit trade? Rubich explains, he dished out brides to everyone, high-ranking Stasi agents, border guards, party bosses. That's how he was able to move about freely in East Germany as a West German. Rubich brought the statues to his scrap metal yard in Oranienburg, where they were cut into pieces so that they could be smuggled across the border without attracting attention. The big question now is where'd they end up? Rubich claims he doesn't know. He says he wasn't involved in the final stage of the operation and that he has no idea who the ultimate client was. But under questioning from Arthur, he eventually remembers where the client lived, a town called Bad Durkheim, near Frankfurt, right in the heart of Germany's wine-growing region. Meanwhile, Berlin detective René Allange has been doing some digging of his own. He's uncovered court documents linking Joe Bodenstein, the elderly grandmaster, with someone called Rainer Wolf. Yeah, take a guess where Rainer Wolf lives. That's right, Bad Durkheim, near Frankfurt, right in the heart of Germany's wine-growing region. Could this be Herr X's mysterious client? The man who bought Torax horses back in 1989? It certainly looks like it, especially if you recall that Stephen was recorded talking on the phone to a man named Wolf the day he met up with Arthur. Oh, there's more. The documents Alange found show that Bodenstein and Wolf were locked in a legal dispute over the ownership of some statues. A theme is emerging amongst these Nazi art lovers. The documents don't specify which statues exactly, but you don't have to be an art detective to take a guess. By now, Alange has everything he needs to get those search warrants. A series of raids takes place at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesday, May 20th. 2015, 200 police officers take part in the operation, led by Allange. The targets include Flick's Seaside Villa in Heikendorf, Bodenstein's Castle, and Wolf's property in Bad Durkheim. As he is the star witness in the case, Arthur's not permitted to tag along. But journalist Konstantin von Hammerstein is embedded with the team that raids Wolf's property. He keeps Arthur in the loop with regular updates. Sometime after nine, Von Hammerstein calls Arthur to tell him that a lawyer known for defending Holocaust deniers on behalf of silent assistance has turned up at Wolf's place. It seems Arthur was on the right track when he suspected a link with Gudrun Burvich's organization. But as morning progresses, the news coming through is disappointing. 
the horses haven't been discovered on any of the premises raided. Arthur's now worried that Flick, Wolf, and Bodenstein will sue for damages. But then, von Hammerstein reports an interesting development. After a conference with his lawyer, Wolf leads detectives to a warehouse at a nearby business park. Being the seasoned investigative reporter he is, von Hammerstein naturally follows them. He sends Arthur a video clip filmed inside the warehouse. In his book, Hitler's Horses, Arthur describes the moment he opens the video. The camera was pointing inside, but it was too dark to see anything. The picture gradually got sharper and lighter, as if they were looming up out of the mist. There they stood. Josef Torax, two horses. The horses that Hitler had seen for years whenever he stared out of his window, brooding about the Second World War. We can imagine the emotions Arthur must have felt as he watched that video. Elation as he realizes that his year-long quest for Hitler's lost art treasures is finally at an end. Disappointment, too. It must have hurt not to be there in person when the discovery is found. But most of all, a deep sense of satisfaction, knowing that his tireless dedication, his obsession almost, has paid off. Without Arthur's resourcefulness, courage, and persistence, the German police may never have found their way to the warehouse where the horses have been hiding. As the significance of the find sinks in, another emotion takes over, fear. Remember, Arthur believes the proceeds from the intended sale were meant for neo-Nazis and their supporters. People like this probably won't take kindly to being deprived of the millions of euros they could use to fund their extremist activities. Arthur faces the very real prospect of reprisals. But his fears prove groundless. It turns out that most modern-day neo-Nazis are delighted to see the recovery of one of the Third Reich's most iconic artworks, which they thought were lost. But Arthur has another concern. He works with a lot of Jewish families, helping them trace artworks looted during the Second World War. He worries that the return of the horses may open up old wounds for them. Will they see his part in their recovery as a betrayal? Again, he needn't have worried. Many of his Jewish clients contact him to say how pleased they are that he's prevented all that money falling into neo-Nazi hands. In the days and weeks that follow the raids, more details of the horse's checkered history emerge. It seems ownership switched between Flick and Wolf over the decades, finally settling with Wolf. As Arthur explains to Town & Country magazine in January 2022, Wolf's children didn't want to inherit these controversial objects, and 
They had threatened to blow them up with dynamite after Wolf died. So Wolf put them up for sale on the black market. There's an epilogue to our story. In January 2023, Yosef Torak's monumental sculpture, Striding Horses, is exhibited at the Spandau Citadel in Berlin. Is it right that Hitler's favorite statues should be shown to the public again? Does interest in Nazi art encourage a resurgence of fascist ideology? What do you think? Arthur Brand's view is clear. Throughout his quest for the horses, he always believed that once they were found, they should go on display. That was part of his motivation in tracking them down. As he recently expressed it, you want to prevent another Holocaust, you have to show what the Nazis did. And that includes their art. If you want to know the full story behind Arthur Brand's incredible investigation into Josef Torak's missing sculptures, be sure to check out his book, Hitler's Horses. It's filled with loads of first-person detail that we weren't able to cover in this series. Pick it up wherever you get your books. Don't forget to listen out for our special extra episode when we hear from Arthur Brand himself, the man they call the Indiana Jones of the art world. Arthur will talk us through some of the highlights of his extraordinary career and walk us through the twists and turns of his most famous case so far, the hunt for Hitler's horses. Hear the truth about the hunt for Hitler's horses straight from the horse's mouth. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's the 1970s and we're in Houston, Texas a city of oil, ambition, and wealth. Where if you've got enough money, you can buy anything, including murder. When plastic surgeon Dr. John Hill is gunned down in his own hometown, top homicide detectives Joe Gamino and Jerry Carpenter are called in to investigate. As they soon discover, this is far from an open and shut case. The victim himself was accused of murder with many believing he killed his first wife, Joan Robinson Hill. The two detectives uncover a deadly conspiracy linking a group of misfits to one of the most powerful men in Houston society. Join them as they connect the dots in Texan money, Texan murder. Murder.